You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Hanging on his bedroom wall, an incomplete family document still occupies the mind of 94-year-old J. Harry Woody, a Truvine native who lives in a four-square home in Roanoke's West End. It's his grandparents' 1878 marriage license. Where the young couple's parents' name are listed, there's a single line where the groom's father's name is intentionally blank, as if he were immaculately conceived. Quote, my great-grandfather was a white man, Woody told me, recounting the story his father told him. See, the landowner would have sex with his black maid, then tell her that she should feel honored that a white man would want her, he exclaimed from his living room hospital bed. Quote, it was happening from slavery all the way down to when I was growing up in the 1930s. They'd force all the maids, and then they had kids of all different colors. As proof, he points to the thin skin of his forearm, the color of coffee with full-fat cream. Quote, and did none of them ever claim their children, he added, his eyes blazing more than a century later with the indignity of his own grandfather's fatherlessness. Quote, they were ashamed to claim their children, but they weren't ashamed to force sex on the maids. I wondered aloud how the white children living nearby identified him. Like Janet Johnson and A.J. Reeves, whom I had interviewed, he remembered walking miles to Truvine School, quote, 60 kids and one teacher in a single room, while the white children took county-furnished buses and taunted the black workers along the way. They called me the N-word, he said, and scoffed. Then he changed the subject, staring at a pre-publication postcard I'd given him that featured the cover of this book. Mr. Woody positively lit up, reading the tobacco field on the cover like he was divining tea leaves, and this is what he saw. Quote, looks just like tobacco from the 30s, he said, pointing to the yellow-tinged leaves. Immature plants still months away from harvest. The yellowed leaves meant that the farmer who planted the crop was poor and probably black. Quote, back when blacks wasn't able to buy fertilizer because they didn't have the money to pay for it. You can tell that because the leaves are turning yellow here before they get to be full-sized. He wanted to know when this book would be for sale. Publication was still more than six months away. He said younger people, black and white, needed to understand the harsh realities of their ancestors. Quote, they think we're lying. They say that was then, this is now. They think everything was roses, but ain't nobody making any of it up. I'd been sitting at his bedside for going on two hours. It was a crisp April morning. He'd ended the interview twice already, saying he was tired, then kept telling stories when I stood up to go. Beth Macy is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Factory Man. Her work has appeared in national magazines and newspapers and the Roanoke Times. Her reporting has won more than a dozen national awards, including a Neiman Fellowship for Journalism and at Harvard and a Lucas Prize. Her new book is Truvine, Two Brothers, A Kidnapping, and A Mother's Quest, A True Story of the Jim Crow South. Thank you for joining me, Beth. It's great to be here, Rick. This is a book where story, history, the power of narrative are all intertwined. We see how they bring order and disorder to one another, how they inform and disinform one another. Could you tell me the very first time you encountered the story of Willie and George Muse and 
what you made of it. What did you, how did it make you feel? I was a young reporter. I had just started working as a feature writer for the Roanoke Times in Virginia. And I was driving around with a photographer one day who had grown up in Roanoke. I had not. He was a white photographer. And he told me the story about these two uh, young African-American brothers who had been kidnapped from a tobacco field around 1900, about an hour south of Roanoke where we were living. And that was all he said. They had been kidnapped and they had been trafficked in the circus. They had sort of been enslaved to be sideshow performers in the circus. And that was all he knew. And he had grown up hearing it. And literally, if you talk to anyone who was black and over the age of 60 uh, in the city where I live now in Roanoke, they would have grown up hearing the story. They wouldn't have been sure if it was kind of urban legend or whether it was really true. But they knew that the caretaker of George and Willie Muse, um, their great niece named Nancy Saunders, she ran a little soul food restaurant. And um, what the photographer told me when he told me this story, he said, it's the best story in town, but nobody's been able to get it. And because of Nancy, didn't want anybody to tell the story. And so I waltz in a few weeks later to this soul food restaurant. I'm the only white person there. It's the kind of place where the menu isn't written down. You're just supposed to know that on Monday it's spaghetti, on Tuesday it's fish, and so on. And she runs it with an iron fist. And so I waltz in and I say, hi, I'm Beth Macy from the Roanoke Times. I love to write a story about your famous great uncles and um, da-da-da-da. And she points to a sign on the wall that a customer has made for her, which should have been my first clue, because the sign says, sit down and shut up. <laughs> right? So, which is funny, but she really meant it because mm-hmm. she had been teased her whole life, as had the brothers, and she had been they had been mocked. She had been teased herself on the playground. Uh, some of her first memories were of people banging on the door after the brothers retired from the circus, demanding to see the, quote, savages that eat raw meat. So they've been disrespected and exploited their whole lives. And the older brother was passed away by the time I came on the scene. But Willie Muse lived to be 108, and he didn't die until 2001. And she did not want me to meet him because... She thought I would further exploit him, as had all the show managers and all the media that he had come in contact with before, who had never really bothered to get the family side of the story. This story is so interesting because it is so American. It takes us on a journey through all what are basically the low points and the lowest portions of American culture for the past century and a half. And I think it's really powerful. And what I found myself so interested in was how complicated it must have been for you to pursue this. We live in a time where, and this is something that this book made me think really strong, was that we live in a time where every single one of our actions for the past, say, 15 years has been date stamped automatically by cell phones, by cameras by everything around us. We know exactly what happened to us and when. You had to look up a story where nothing was known, little was written down, everything was remembered, and most of it was misremembered. That must have been an incredible challenge. Yeah, and the and the most challenging part of all was that they had been written about hundreds over a thousand times because they were quite famous, especially when they were with Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey, which is the circus they were with when their mother got them back in 1927. So even that event itself was was highly documented, but never 
ever from the family's point of view. So you see the New York Times writing about it and the New Yorker writing about it. And initially, I mean, and you just see the way white people like us, if we would have been doing our jobs then, we would have probably covered it the same way, which is to say that they treated black people like they were subhuman beings. Nobody ever interviewed the family. When the brothers finally rejoined the circus, they say it was only because, quote, the fried chicken had given out in Roanoke. They're still making fun of them at every turn, uh, quoting the mother in dialect when it was clear they never actually interviewed the mother, and just so many holes. And so I was actually interviewing a historian who had written about sideshows, and she had actually looked up this case as well. And she was from Canada. And I said, Jane, like, it's just so hard because you get so close, but then you don't hear their voice. And you, but, and you have all these pictures to study and all these interviews and kind of contextual background, but you never can quite get to the brothers. And she said, you just have to do the best you can using the photographs and your own empathy and the context to put the picture into full view. Because she said, if we only wrote about the people who were well-documented, we would only write about privileged people. And so it was my job to try to fill in the holes with as much accuracy as I could, and, and heart, frankly. I, I thought you did such a, a beautiful job in telling the story and in why you never simplify it. You make it clear simultaneously how complicated it this story is and how many different places you have to go. Yet we were able to grok it. I'm wondering, just in terms of organizing this book, did this come out this way the first time, or this was a this was a long range project for you, wasn't it? Yeah, but, well, it took me twenty five years really to get her to trust me enough to let me turn the story into a book. She did. She she was correct. She never let us meet Willie Muse mm -hmm. before he died. So I interviewed lots of people that were his caregivers, his doctor, his lawyer, uh, friends. Um, Lots of family members, but I was never permitted to meet him. So, um, and then over the course of 25 years, she let me, she let me write a piece about him after he died, but she didn't tell us much. Like there was actually a prominent murder that happened that, that we never knew about. So we never knew to look for it in the archives that, that I was able to find about it in this book because she said, you missed a big one scoop. <laughs> so whenever I go back to the restaurant, she was always sort of needling me. Like we, it, like you, it, it, if she thought I was being nosy, she would call me Snoop. But usually she called me Scoop, totally derisively. And I mean, this is a tough lady, and but totally worth the time it took to get her to trust me. I I think that well, she clearly took after Harriet, the boy's mother. She was the, almost in many ways, you say, the the la latter-day stand-in for them. Uh, tell us about the circumstances of Harriet when uh, George and Willie were uh, kidnapped, when they disappeared. Yeah. So Harriet, um, the, the family grew up in rural Truvine, Virginia, which is a little crossroads. There's still a church there, very vibrant but small African-American church. And most of the blacks in the region who had been enslaved before the end of the Civil War end up in the system called sharecropping, where they are basically allowed to live on the land and work the fields. And it was a very, very, you know, fraught system in which at the end of the season, because the people didn't read largely, um, they just had to take the farmer's word that this is how much money we made. Oh, and oh by the way, you, here's your 
quarter. It should have been a half, but it was a quarter if you had borrowed money at the beginning of the season to buy the seed, et cetera. So there's a lot so just rampant with abuse. And um, this was a season, this a system that many people in this region labored in for until the 50s and 60s, really. And um, so Harriet was part of this. The story went that the brothers were kidnapped by a promoter. Um, this is a time when the circus was the number one form of entertainment in America, you know, before TV films, professional sports were big, before radio even. And um, second only to Christmas Day was Circus Day, the day when the circus would come through your town. And the sideshow was envisioned as a sort of... Um, second admission, a different way to get a quarter out of your pocket. And so they would gather these um, uh, differently abled people or people who did special tricks like sword swallowing or one guy shoved bunches of balls in his mouth. And um, it just that was entertainment. You I mean, talked about a guy not. who hammered railroad spikes up his nose. Oh, yes. Melvin Burkhardt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I actually met him. He's yeah. one of the few sideshow artists I actually met. Yeah. And um, so George and Willie were, were swept up into this. And this was around 1914 was the first time I actually find them in the literature. The circus was covered by Billboard magazine, which was then they covered the number one form of entertainment, which was a circus, not music and movies. And um, so that's when I first find them, like, kind of in the archives, literally a photograph of them as little children standing in these suits that are two sizes too small. And I would do things like what I would get a nice piece of evidence like that. I would send it to an expert who could read it. So, like, he, I sent it to a historic costume expert who said, historic menswear is my passion. <laughs> and he saw all these things that I wouldn't have noticed on my own because I just thought they looked scared. And he pointed out, oh, they've been wearing these suits for two years. So they're 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 dressed up, but not that well. Now, now these boys were were black albinos. Talk mm -hmm. about that existence and that state for them. Yeah. So that would have been really hard to do outside work because mm -hmm. you would have burned at the first blush of the sun. Um, people with albinism are um, usually legally blind at birth. And... Albinos were considered a great find for a circus sideshow promoter, um, kind of right below a giant, but perhaps above a dwarf. And because, you know, they were kind of rare. And it's more common among uh, African-American people or people of African descent than it is. And, you know, there were people still in uh, Tanzania, for instance, that kidnapped people with albinism because people be some people believe their body parts have uh, magical powers. And this is, this is a real thing right now. There's mm -hmm. a lot of human rights organizations working with them. But um, but there it was happening then. And so we know the brother brothers were trafficked for a, at least a period of uh, 13 years. And then Harriet <laughs> prevails. Uh, I, I This is such a, a fascinating story. From the very beginning, she, she was looking for, for her children. So... Uh, and at the same time, she was married to a man who's probably not the best of men. Talk, talk about her existence in Roanoke, because one of the things that boggled my mind about this book was this is called True Story of Jim Crow South. Let's get this straight right here. I was shocked to find out that up until 1971, Virginia was charging a poll tax. That's yes. scary yes. stuff. We think that all the horrible things that are happening now have just are some kind of aberration. It's just it's business as usual. Not that from, long ago. Yes. 
Yes. So, um, right. So she moves to Roanoke from Truvine, probably mm-hmm. wanting to join the gas economy. Uh, the, it was a r- booming railroad town at that time. Um, but she moves there in 1915 or thereabouts. And um, this is a city that has just enacted an ordinance that says where black people can live. Okay, so they can't vote. They could vote after the Civil War, but then in 1902, the legislature takes away their rights and institutes these poll taxes and tests. And it was all up to the the clerk whether or not they thought you were literate enough. And usually black people weren't literate enough. And so they had basically no rights. And, and I think we all know about separate schools and water fountains. But to me, the the best contribution this book makes is it tells in a really gritty way what daily living was like for people like Harriet Muse and the other people in her neighborhood. And one of the things I would do is I would drive around that neighborhood today with people who grew up then and maybe had a connection with the family. And they would tell me things like we would go buy an empty lot. And I always record my interviews with permission on my iPhone, like in the drink holder of my car. And people remember things when you go buy actual places, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always like to get out in my car with people. And we're driving by this empty lot. And this African-American woman in her 80s says, yeah, I remember we used to have to do- – we lived on this block, which was where black people could live. But then we had to walk by these two blocks that were where white people lived to get to school because the bus didn't come for us. We had to walk, you know, two miles to get to school. We had to walk by these houses. And in this one house that was on this vacant lot, the person who lived there trained her parrots who were in the side porch to squawk racial epithets as the at these black children as they walk to school and just to have that be somebody's memory this dignified woman at the age of 86 or 88 that's what she remembers when she drives by this block I drive by that block every day on my way to downtown and had never thought of that and 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 I just kept running across this desire that people had for people to understand how hard it was for them I think that the Many stories in this book are are really uh, beautifully orchestrated, and it's almost like a you have it's like a a huge building with frescoes that will tell little little sub stories that that contribute to this. And, and I'd like you to to talk about how you archived and wrote down these stories and organized them so that you could understand and put together your understand just yourself what had happened because this is a a big picture. Yeah. Well, one of the first things I did is I took every single article I could find in which they'd ever been written about. And they were never written with their real names. It was mm-hmm. always their show names. So first I had to find out all of their show names. And then I got access to this database of Billboard magazines and, and Variety. And I chronicled every single instance. And I, the only way I could keep up with it, because it was so massive, is I organized them um, chronologically in a binder. And then I would read uh, books. So a lot of these promoters and circus owners wrote biographies. I mean, there's one of the first ones. So self-important. <laughs> totally. I mean, they were like, you know, the Every- Tom Hanks of their day, right? They were like big dudes. <laughs> and so like Algie Barnes, who, who ran a circus out of California at the time, very uh, big circus. He was the first circus owner to, quote, buy them. He brags about buying them and selling them in his memoir and that he wrote in 1936. So that gives you an inkling. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong. I'm going to brag about it in my memoir. So then I would I would put all my sources together 
Um, and I would try to create this very rich timeline that's not only the history of the circus, what's going on with the brothers, what's going on with the family back in home, what conditions are like for African Americans, what's happening in the city at home, because, you know, that's a really important thing, too. Because by the time the reader gets to 1927, when Harriet goes under that sideshow tent and she says, those are my children and I want to bring them home. I want you to know that the top cop in town is the founder of the local KKK, which is the largest clavern in the state, and that on that very piece of land just two weeks before, the KKK had a huge rally. I want you to know that so you'll know how almost suicidally bold and brave it was of her to do what she did. There are so many kind of uh, fascinating sub-histories in this book. And the the, cir- the history of the circus that you tell is so wonderful. Uh, I One of my most favorite novels that I've read probably in the past 30 or so years is a novel called Geek Love by Catherine Dunn, <laughs> which is set in the circus. It's a, it's, it's a sideshow novel, terrifying and awful in so many ways, in many of the ways that this book is. So, and you were alluding to this before, there was a a really strict hierarchy in the sideshow, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. So, like, the big top performers, they were the... They were the ones that got to hang out with John Ringling (laughs) and and the executives, you know, the brothers Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And then the sideshow had its own kind of pecking order, too. And my sense was that early on, George and Willie... uh, before their mother got them back, before they were actually being paid for their work. They didn't have a lot of power. I mean, in the early days, I mean, some of their first memories of those early days is of being told to quit crying, your mother is dead. So they were told their mother was dead, and they should just get on with it. And so you see, like, in their countenance, they look really scared in that earlier picture. And then later, they look stiff, but a little more comfortable. And then by the time... Like, by the time the 1940s roll around, there's actually a great picture in the book of them with some other performers. It's a candid, it's one of the few candid shots of them, and it's them with another big-top performer. And, and George Muse actually has his hand on the bare shoulder of a white woman, and everybody looks cool with it. You know, so you can see that they're part of the gang, they're friends, and that would have been very rare uh, during that time anywhere in America. Well, what you say is that the the circus, and in particular the sideshow, was a place where blacks, gay people, the people outcasts of of the world could find acceptance and and even equality with one another, if not the rest of the world. Yeah, and and they actually developed a pride of calling about it. You know, they would say, um, they're laughing at us, but we're laughing behind the scenes because they're paying money to see us, which is a neat turning, I think. Well, there was another effect of reading this book, too, which I would call the Zelig effect, which was that these these, uh, two young boys, men and eventually old men, I mean, they were in the presence of so many names and places and people that are super familiar to us today. And and I think that that must... did that help? Was that a way that you were able to locate them? Did you look for famous people and then kind of see if they were in the vicinity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or, um, yeah, the Ringling Brothers the... and uh, Lietzel, Lily and Lietzel, who uh-huh. was a famous aerialist. I mean, they were 
traveling with all of these people. And then big things in history, like the first time they appear in actual documents or when they had to register for the selective service, you know, and then they get that card and you see where they are and um, you see where they are the first time they ride. The it's not the QE two, but I forget the the, the majestic, the mm-hmm. SS majestic, which was like a cousin to the Titanic, and the first time they get to go to England, and yeah, I liked it. Whenever I can kind of put place the reader in with the larger detail, or that other sideshow performer who was photographed and went out all over the wires on the lap of J P Morgan. Because this is when he was being called a bankster and he was a bad guy in the Depression. And they thought it would humanize him by putting Leah Graff, who was uh, um, one of the little people, on his lap. And she was this beautiful young woman. And then she was mocked. And and she ends up getting sent back to Germany and ends up in Auschwitz. So it's a tragic story. But you have these big moments in history also crossing paths with these brothers from Trubine, Virginia. And in that way, it's just another way to tell another part of an untold story. The the story of the mother and the kind of racism that she had to endure and encounter every day when she was looking for her, her sons is amazing. I mean, just the idea of saying that, you know, two two children were kidnapped from their mother and sold and run around in the circus. That's uh, almost seemed almost inconceivable. Talk about um, trying understanding the emotional arc of, of Harriet Muse. Yeah. Um, so that all came through Nancy because I've known mm-hmm. Nancy the longest. Um, I did know Nancy's mother Dot, who had been there, um, would have been Harriet's granddaughter. And so I heard lots of stories through the years about those early years and how nobody would lift a, nobody in power would lift a finger to help her. And so by the time she f- locates them, she advocates to get them back, and then she actually files a lawsuit against Ringling, the greatest show on earth, something that would have been like suing the Carnegies or the Rockefellers. They were a really, really big deal. And here's this illiterate black maid, finds the most ambitious white attorney she can find in Roanoke, Virginia, who goes on to become a famous Virginia litigator. But back then, he's young and hungry, and he wants to get his name in the newspaper because he knows that'll help him get new clients. And this was somebody who was said to make, he could make, during his own closing arguments, he could make himself cry. (laughs) I thought that was great. Is Is this Meissner? Is that his name? Oh, Messick. Warren Messick. Warren Messick. Uh, So she's been uh, looking for her sons. And one of the things that uh, really struck me was that the power of the circus as an entertainment behemoth. Mm -hmm. It's kind of difficult for us to understand now because, and and but I kept being reminded every time I saw the word billboard, and I kept seeing it so much early in the, in the, uh, the narrative referring to the circus. I thought, wow, I'll never think about billboard the same way again. And, And also too, just to think about the circus as the, uh, an entertainment behemoth. Yeah, the dominant form of entertainment between 1840 and 1940. That's a long time. That's longer than radio or TV done last. <laughs> right, right. And they traveled. It was like a city, a, mo- a city that moved at night. You know, they'd pack up at the end of the day after a show and they would get back on the trains. I mean, hundreds of animals, hundreds of people. 
numerous train cars and just a lot of power. And literally, it was the second most day, important day of a person's year after Christmas. So it was Christmas Day, then Circus Day. And people were just, you know, this is the early industrialization. And people are, um, people don't really go on vacations the way they did now. You know, they didn't then the way we do now. And so they would wait for the circus to come and they would save their monies. And then they would, um, they would collect these little items and People would have them in their Victorian parlors, like pictures of sideshow artists, to show the neighbors when they came over. This is what I did this summer. Well, the world, they could not go to the world via travel, nor did the world come to them quite so easily yeah. through TV and radio, the way it, on the Internet, the way it does to us. So uh, when the world came to them in the form of a circus, they would see it. And that was also, they would consider that, to a certain extent, you know, there was a it was at least uh, mooted as as a learning experience, educational yeah, experience. scientific. Yes. <laughs> so we forget that, like, the word scientist wasn't coined to, like, 1860 or so, something uh-huh. like that. It's, it's in the book. I'm not remembering it probably exactly, but it was fairly new. And some of these sideshow acts in particular were, were con- like, quote, scientific, come see. And there was a lot of interest in Africa, mm-hmm. right, the, the untamed continent. And so you were supposed to come see um, these Zulu wild men, and they would really just be like African-American people who had been plucked out of Baltimore somewhere, you know, and they were told to grunt and act funny and like they could. I mean, some of them were literally kidnapped from the wilds of Africa, but many of them were just people that they found here and they dressed up. There was a... Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There's a very, Probably the most famous sideshow performer ever was a, a William Henry Johnson who went by the name Zip. And he was Barnum's kind of special project, very close to, to Barnum. And he was... he. We're not sure, you know, his story has never been accurately told, so you don't know exactly what to believe. But he was dressed to look as if he had encephaly, encephalitis and sort of a pointy head. And then his hair would be kind of sculpted to a little knot on the top. And he wore a fur coat. And Barnum was said to pay him a dollar a day not to talk. And he would eat cigars and do all these crazy things and just act like a wild man. And, um, you know, just just a horrific way to live and yet you can tell by the end of his days that when he dies in 1926 there's this huge funeral for him all the people in the sideshow revere him and love him and what I there's a scene in the book where he was taught to act like you know he wasn't very with it but in the back he's playing craps and, come <laughs> on baby come yeah. on seven <laughs> yeah. now um and this is one of the, I think, more interesting and troubling aspects of this book is you do a great job of keeping a really balanced picture. On one hand, the life these boys would have faced as sharecroppers might have killed them fairly quickly, just by virtue, as you said, the sun, they're blind, yes. they're legally blind. So on one hand, to a certain extent, they were better off to have been kidnapped or whatever happened to them. And uh, in, in the circus, but on the other hand, they were also still literally treated as slaves, sold as human beings. This is an you know, this is a very troubling uh, equation which you offer no solution to, and there is no solution to. There it. isn't. It's history. It it's, happened. 
it's just and, and what is were they better off with the circus than they would have been at home? I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, there's a woman I interviewed who sharecropped for years and years, and so did her parents. None of them ever learned how to read um, because they weren't allowed to go to school when the crop was in. She finally gets frustrated and quits in the sixth grade, quits school. She can read a little bit. I got I gave her a audio copy of the book so she could hear her story. But she says, she and she grew up right down the road from the Muse Brothers, and she says she remembered the sto- hearing the story as a little girl, and it was really sad to her. But she said it also left her with a feeling of longing. She said, because only in a place like this, for some of us, could the notion of being kidnapped and actually getting the heck out of here and seeing the whole world seem like an opportunity. So she had, in some ways, hadn't really left that way of thinking. You know, the the brothers, when, when they were kidnapped and told their mother was dead repeatedly, they were given a variety of names. That's actually one of the interesting aspects of circus culture was that the, the barker, the various showmen who would present them and own them, this is a really tangled web. And, and these people would give them different names. They'd be the ambassadors from Mars. They'd be Eco and Ico, which was our, eventually what they mostly settled on, and they had a. But that was part of the game was to give these the the people on in the Shide show a variety of backgrounds, whatever seemed most convenient and interesting at the moment. Right, and also to change their names oh. so that if you came back the next year, you would have this notion that you were seeing a different and more exciting act. But it was really saying the old George and Willie. <laughs> now, uh, George and Willie, after being taken from their mother. There was some intimation and intuition by people who weren't there that they were, um, and it was often said that they were mentally incompetent. Mm-hmm. And, and over and over, over and over. And, the New and, Yorker said they dither as they walk. Their eyes, like they just assumed that because their eyes couldn't quite focus, mm-hmm. because they had this condition because of their albinism called nystagmus. People with albinism, their eyes can't focus, and so it, they're squinting and blinking a lot. And the, and because people didn't bother to get to know them, they didn't realize how sharp they really were. And, and this is borne out by the fact, and you uh, again, wonderful job. You make this beautifully clear. These boys were musical geniuses. They yes. had perfect pitch. They could hear anything and play it back to you immediately. And that's not amazing. It is amazing. So talk about their 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 careers as musicians because that's when they really kicked off. Yeah, yeah. So the first picture I found of them actually holding instruments and not just standing there looking scared. I think they're about fourteen and seventeen in this picture, and um, one's holding a saxophone and the other's holding a banjo. And I sent that picture to a musicologist because I I thought he was holding it in the call hammer style, but I wanted to make sure. And you know they're from rural Franklin County huge history of uh, Southern Piedmont blues and w- would have been playing that same kind of style because I wanted to, the one of the circus owners brags in his memoirs about teaching him to play music and the brothers turned out to be possible musicians he said well they actually they could hear a song on and play it on, on almost any instrument after just one hearing and this was something that they were very proud of and, I mean, they played xylophones, they played any stringed instrument, saxophone, anything. And this was something that gave them um, some power, you know. They were good at it. They would entertain other people as they were packing up, as the 
the other folks were packing up the tents and getting ready. George and Willie would play in it was called the circus backyard, you know, kind of behind the scenes. And people had really fond memories of them. And, you know, we all like to do something we're good at. It makes us feel good. Exactly. They, this was a, an area where they could excel easily. Yes. And they were where, in an instant, they were transformed from sideshow freaks into fully grown, integrated adults who could do something that nobody else standing around them could do. Exactly, exactly. And that was something they held on to the rest of their lives. So you've got Willie at the age of 108 still singing those songs that he sang in the 19 teens and 20s. And well, he has a stroke in uh, at about 103, and he can no longer play his guitar. So he holds it in his lap, but he still sings the songs. It's a long way from Tipperary, which is a song about missing home, reminding him of his mother during World War One. And that was the song. Now let's go ratchet back to 1927. This is yeah. an incredible scene. Their mother has figured out where they are. She's known for a while that they're with the circus, but then the circus comes to town. Uh, the Ringling Brothers have no idea what's waiting for them. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's a I great mean, way to put it. <laughs> John Ringling, he, he's on top of the world. I mean, he is the uh, Donald Trump of his time in, the, in that he can do anything with anyone for any reason. Yeah, exactly. So the side... Or, the circus, in, when it came to the South, it was segregated just the way everything in the South mm -hmm. was. So in the big top, African-Americans would have to sit in the back row. They called them the back-end blues. But in the shy show, it was one of the few places uh, where segregation broke down because you actually stood up as a patron. You stood up, and the, the acts were paraded in, and they were paraded up on a platform, and there's the barker or the spieler would go down each act. And the person would either perform their special skill or answer a few questions, or in George and Willie's case, play a little tune. And each person would get their 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 chance, you know, their 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 moment. And so, and the audience would sort of mill around, going from act to act as this was happening. So they, you would stand up and you would actually move, so you could get, kind of get closer to the person whose turn it was. And so somehow Harriet makes her way from the back where she's supposed to be, and she makes her way up the front. And it is said that George and Willie were in the middle of uh, playing a song. It's a long way to Tipperary. Their a song, key of, song. <laughs> a song about missing home. And there she is. And this story has been told down all the generations of their family. It's always told exactly the same way. And what they say is George, the older brother, elbows Willie and says, Look, there is our dear mother. She is not dead. And they sort of like put their instruments down and uh, come down from the platform, and she enveloped us them in in her arms. So moving, and so bold. And then the police show up, <laughs> and I know this because this is well documented in the newspapers. Eight police officers come. All the Ringling attorneys come. They travel with three lawyers at all times, and there's this tug of war between Harriet the lawyers and the cops and uh, Candy Shelton, their kidnapper slash promoter, um, because they don't want to give them back because they're good money makers. Well, this is a, a battle royale that uh, easily, as 
fascinating and as wildly outrageous as any kind of trial we see today. I mean, this is she's suing them for a hundred thousand dollars, which is yeah. an insane amount of money then. Right. And she is like uh you know, the the office girl going up against Harvey Weinstein. I mean <laughs> Exactly. Uh, this, I mean, it's that kind of battle. It's it's going in, up against the, the Ringling Brothers, and you do a, a wonderful job of, of showing us how we got this shabby shibboleth. That's the Barn Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, where they all came from. That was really fun just to read about that history at the circus too. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really a thing, and these you know they started out like just some farm boys yeah, in Baraboo, Wisconsin, yeah. juggling plates. <laughs> You know, and then they get hooked up with James Bailey, and um, you know he's very organized. He the military actually goes to him to learn how to organize their ships. And I love that he's a great character, and yeah. so many great characters in this book. Yes, and they and and people like that were so well documented that you could just pick and choose. Like one of his things he did when he was nervous is he would chew rubber bands. <laughs> I mean, I love a detail like that. <laughs> or their kidnapper when we finally meet him at the end of his life, Candy Shelton. What a what he's a got scoundrel! A, yes, he's got a lima beans on the stove and he's wearing a wife beater t shirt and he's sad and lonely. So uh, you know, just you couldn't make this stuff up. Uh, you know. Putting this uh, together, it must have been really a feat because I, I'm as you're a storyteller, you want to tell a story. This is a story that, in many ways, cannot be told because the central core nub of the story that begins the book when the boys were were the boys out there in working in the fields. When when Candy Shelton came up and and took them away, or did the did Harriet sell them? Right. And this is a, a, a the point where family stories meet history, and those are two very powerful forces. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So there is some suggestion in in the documents that perhaps she initially let to let them go, mm-hmm. presumably for, for pay. Uh, the family has always been told that they were kidnapped from a field. Willie himself said they were. He named his kidnapper. And so you have these different things that tell two different stories. And the only thing I could do is, is I tried to find as much out as I could. I tried to go down each rabbit hole and, and get just as close as I could to the truth. And because cause it's for sure that they were trafficked for at least 13 years. It's just a matter of, how did they initially get in the circus? And whose version of the story do I believe? And I think it's unknowable. I really do. Um, one interviewer asked me, if, uh, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't, I don't think anything for sure because there is some evidence for both sides. But I know that I don't want to be one more person not telling Uncle Willie's side of the story. Like uh, he named his kidnapper and, um, you know, he was, he was with it at the time. He had a memory of it, and um, I, I don't think it's right to discount it just because there's a little evidence that she may have initially let them go. Um, and that evidence is presented in Billboard what, by the white mainstream media, and there and it's actually the, the, the brothers have been taken off by one showman from another, and, and she's allegedly putting a notice in Billboard saying she wants them brought back, but she doesn't read or write. So really, I think it's probably the other showman who's mad that the that 
Candy has taken <laughs> them off. So, I mean, it's just, as a journalist, you know, you always have to be uh, rigorous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's in this story, story about exploitation, exploitation, you have to be respectful too. So it's, it's, it was a, it was a fraught line, and you know, and then I have this uh, powerful woman on the other end, Nancy, right? Nancy's who's, who's fantastic. She's a fantastic character. Is she going to want to hear that maybe Harriet sold them? No, no. But do I have to tell her? Yes. So, I, so what I do is I'm just totally transparent. Every uncomfortable truth, I dig up. I, I call her. Uh, we meet. We go over it. I get her reaction and that's just the only thing i can think of to do in that situation you know in this book i was reading that i kept kept reading i thought boy you did a lot of interviews and you just spent a lot of time talking and more importantly listening to a lot of people um you were the witness to people who actually witnessed history and i think that's such an important job. What you write down in this book, what you record in this book, is stuff that, as you say, it's history at a level that we're not used to seeing. We're used to seeing the, the history of kings and queens and presidents and and governors because that, to be honest, that matters. On the other hand, knowing how everybody else had to live actually probably matters a lot more. <laughs> yeah, it's the people's history, really, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that's that's why I chose to read that section that I read because, like, it just is one— I mean, there's many examples like that where there's just this palpable need people have at the end of their lives in particular for their stories to be known and because they shed light on things that are happening today. You know, I live two hours away from the Charlottesville where the KKK— just rallied yeah, a month you, or so ago. You think that, you know, I'm reading about, you know, in this book about the the huge upsurge and upswing in the the membership of the KKK that happened uh, at one point when uh, I think Roanoke was a, we were talking about Roanoke and, and you know, the, the, the Clavin, I guess that's what they call their mm-hmm. groups. And I was thinking, Boy, when she started this book, all the shenanigans that were all up in arms about today were nowhere to be seen, uh, or at least right. not, 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 not on the front pages. So you must have found yourself, uh, as you uh, wrote this book, going, oh, my. This <laughs> right. <And laughs> it, it's also fir- just a sense of history repeating. Yes, yes. And, 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 knowing, and knowing the history is so important to know this people's history, I think, because everybody uh, in that community grows up hearing the stories. I think it's our job as, as, as the white community to know these stories, too. Yeah, no, it helps us. It, we are all aided by understanding reality. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> if for no Not other reality reason, TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I think it's nice to know that when I drop, when I pick up this little bottle cap here, gravity will pull it down again and again. That that's reality. Yes, and that that matters. Um, the. I think the 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 coda, the way this book finishes up, is so interesting because for so long we're in back in in you know the the a time that to us seems remote is almost as remote as feudal times and certainly almost as primitive. But when we you know meet uh, Willie, and he's 108 years old, it's just amazing. It's amazing to see that. Um, 
no matter how much happens, people survive no matter what level they're living at. Yes, persistence. And I mean, I just love that he goes in the course of this book in 108 years of being like this this cautionary tale, like, you all be careful when you go to the circus or the fair, you might get kidnapped like George and Willie, to being a wise elder in his community, revered by all the people who took care of them. And he's got um, this niece who champions him and files another lawsuit when he gets mistreated at the age of 102 in the hospital. Um, Sue's the largest employer in town. And he's, he's got these women who are just so fierce. And everyone he comes into contact loves him. I mean, and they all talk about him. They, they revere him almost. And um, I like that at the end, you finally really get to hear him and know him as a person. That's really important. And then, of course, the funeral scene is quite moving as well with all these things coming to fruition at once that have been so important in his life. Well, I think you did a, a wonderful job at um, all, you always show the brothers from the outside all through the book. You, you never give in to the temptation to say to to show how they felt or or you never try to construe how they felt. you you stick to the facts. and that's a really I mean that's an important point for any historian, but I think that in a book like this, where you're so immersed in the characters' lives, how did you separate your emotional life from theirs? Mm. Well, you know, as a journalist, I can't really extrapolate what they were feeling. Mm -hmm. I can say what they said they were feeling later in life, but that's secondhand too because I'm hearing that from Nancy and from other family members since I didn't meet them. Um, I can say what she was probably thinking. I try never to say something in the book unless I know it to be true or documented. And th that's tricky. I mean, somebody had suggested earlier on, you should just write this as a novel. Well, that's not what I do. Mm -hmm. And I think there's more power in getting as close to it as I can. Yeah. And and what that reveals about our real society here today, as well as back then. Well, I think, you know, uh, this book is as compelling, if not more so, than a novel. It's just as much of a page-turner. Oh, thank you. And, and it really, I think, the the power of narrative and story in this, I, can't, I maybe come back to that a lot, because uh, for me, there are so many interesting twists and turns. This has more twists and turns and wriggles back on itself and undermines itself and then come, the stories come back this way and that way I, I think the just the very nature the chameleonic nature of story in this book is really a powerful story part of the story that's a chameleonic I don't think I've ever heard that word I love it though <laughs> I love it yeah and then and, and then there were things that you I mean the hardest parts were frankly were when stories or information came about that cast doubt on the family's version of the story. That's a tricky thing to go sure. back. As a white reporter, for me to go back and say, well, eh, you know, and just uh, that was tough to navigate at times. And I just, but I had to be like, just really transparent with it. You know, that to me, that's the key. Like, I want the person to know what I'm trying to do. I want them to know every step of the way what I'm doing. And um, here's what I've come up with. And you, you just you, you're not writing for the subjects, but you 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 want to do them honor and 
and and you don't want to do them harm unnecessarily and so it's this it's this dance are you working on a new story is there another story that you've been involved in for the past 25 <laughs> years that's yeah, rippling uh, through i actually am working on a new book now it's being edited and i'm when i get on the plane tomorrow morning i'm going to be working on my second batch of edits and this is more this is a book and another um journalism book uh nonfiction book that is more like growing out of my first book, Factory Man, which mm-hmm. was about the aftermath of globalization in these little dying factory towns and told through the story of this guy who fought back and sued China in a court of international trade to keep his furniture factory going. This is a book, um, my new book is called Dope Sick, and it's about the opioid epidemic. So I'm going back to the same landscape of these many of these little towns oh, in boy. America. Yeah, they haven't changed much in that regard. No, they haven't. I mean, they've just gotten worse. You've got Food stamps tripling, disability rates really going skyrocketing since China joined the WTO, and crime and drug crime um, really, really increasing. And so I'm telling the story of the opioid epidemic as it landed. I'm only going back to, well, no, um, for most of the story, I'm going back to 1996 with the introduction of OxyContin in mm-hmm. these small towns and how that changed the face of them. But I'm actually also going back to the late 1800s when Bear introduced a little thing called heroin <laughs> in a bottle. And after It was the- your hero. <laughs> Right. It was. That was was their sales. It was German for heroic and strong, the word heroin. And, of course, that was marketed just the way OxyContin was. It was supposed to cure people from morphinism because people were really into morphine back then. And I found this great, you're going to love this because I know you like the old stuff, great piece in the archives from 1884. And it's this doctor writing the letter of the Richmond Times Dispatch. He's writing a letter to the editor because the General Assembly is trying to decide whether or not they should continue to allow pharmacists to just give out morphine willy-nilly. You didn't even have to have a doctor's (laughs) prescription then. And they had a huge wave of morphinism back then. And so the General Assembly says, that's class legislation, you know, and so this doctor writes and he says, I have seen this drug. Uh, it spares no one, young and old, black and white, rich or poor. And if we keep handing out this drug like we are now, we're going to be so numbed out as a society as to elect a despot. The new book by Beth Macy is True Vine. Two Brothers, A Kidnapping, and A Mother's Quest, A True Story of the Jim Crow South. Thank you for joining me, Beth. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.